<laughs> Praise the Lord. All right. My message today is freedom from error. And um, as we begin to go into this scripture, I just want to uh, take a few minutes, uh, think about this. How many have ever heard a term addition by subtraction? Addition by subtraction. That means that there's something that you've taken away that's actually added to your life. And uh, this message is, a lot of times in the house of God, you want to hear a new revelation or a new message. And sometimes God is having a hard time. Um, his, sometimes His grace can't reach you because there's something there that holds it back. You know, sometimes there are very important things in the Word of God, the whole counsel of God, that He's trying to impart to you, but He's not able to impart to you because something is holding that back. His love is being withheld. His wisdom is being withheld. Uh, your maturity is greatly affected by error. And so what God wants to do today is He wants to have addition through subtraction. I mean, things in your life that could be holding God back, um, God wants to remove those things so He can pour into your life. Okay? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we love You so much, Lord. Holy Spirit, we want You to have Your will and Your way. Lord, we want You to be glorified in this place. We want You to speak and only You, Lord God. Hide me behind Your cross and minister to Your people, Lord. Your beloved, Lord. In Your name we pray. Everybody said, Amen. Alright, if you would turn with me to Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Give me an Amen when you're there. So I'll know. Toward the back of the book. Don't be ashamed to use the table of contents. It's what it's there for. It's not unspiritual at all. I use it quite often. This message is all about breaking foundations. How many know if a foundation um, is not carefully laid, it can affect everything that's built above it? So it's okay. Don't get don't get nervous. Don't get stressed, but it's okay to examine our foundations. How many know we should always do that? I'm not uh, one who um, spends a lot of time looking at denominational foundations, but I read everybody. Everybody who's uh, teaching the Word of God, I try to see what they're saying, and I go back and I, say, and I don't say to myself, what's my opinion? I don't go back and say, you know, what's my denomination say? I don't go back and say, what so-and-so say, what I do is I compare it to the Word of God and I see if it's properly divided and if it's a good word for my life to build on. And so today we're going to read in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. And um, basically in Second Peter chapter 2, Peter is warning about false teaching that is going to come. It's in the midst of coming. And then we'll go to Jude here in a second, and Jude is actually talking a few years later when it actually did come. Like he said it was going to come, and now it has already come. And so they're warning the church to be careful of false teaching and false foundations. And so he says, actually this is verse 2, but there were also, okay, notice the words, there were also false prophets among the people. He's talking about the Old Testament. There were times, and they go into examples, there were false prophets among the people. He says, and there will be false teachers among you. So he's laying a foundation here. There have always been false teachers. There were and there will be. Okay, this isn't a special time in church history. This is the norm. How many understand that? The norm is there will be false teachers. They secretly, and he says among you, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. 
Now this is interesting. If you have a uh, King James Version, it probably says damnable seas, which uh, this is a very serious word. This isn't just somebody whose teaching will make your life bad and have consequences. The word literally means an eternal damnable word, like something that can cause you um, to be damned as a person. You know, that's not a bad word that I'm saying there. I'm not one that you know walks on the edge of saying bad words, but that's the word that simply means that particular teaching can make you go so off course um, that literally it's it's damnable or destructive to the point of eternity. Okay, so this is pretty serious stuff they're talking about here. And he says, they'll secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord that brought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct in the way of truth into disrepute. This means their conduct, um, they'll they'll be very uh, sensuous. They'll be very uh, immoral. Um, Their lifestyle won't match what we're used to reading uh, what a Christian should be. Okay, And that particular lifestyle that they're teaching will bring swift destruction on themselves, but it says, how many will follow them? Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute, meaning the gospel will suffer damage. Like because of the gospel that they're teaching and the teaching that's coming from these false teachers, uh, the gospel is going to be damaged. How many know that the gospel has been damaged in our day too? There's a lot of things that have damaged the gospel to where some people, when they, when they get ready, to, it's hard for them to even hear because it's been damaged. In their mind, it's damaged, okay? And he goes on. In their... What's your word there? Greed. These teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Okay, now skip down to verse 13. <clears throat> the middle verses there, it talks about several examples in the Old Testament where... Uh, this happened before. It happened before, it'll happen again, and it'll happen in our day as well, okay? And it says, they will be paid back with harm for the harm that they have done. Their ideal pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. Their blots and blemishes reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. They have eyes that are full of adultery and they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable and they are experts in greed. They're in a cursed broad. They have left what? The straight way or the right way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, the son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness, but he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal that did not have speech and spoke with a human voice and restrained the, restrained the madness of this prophet. Let's skip down. Let's go to Jude verse 3 and 4. And like I said, this is the same topic that both of them are discussing, okay? There was a certain kind of heresy um, that Paul addresses a lot in Romans. It's a different one than this one. And then there's another heresy um, that Peter and Jude and, and John and, and 1 John addresses, and it's all pretty well the same group of heresy. There's two different ones here that they really address in the New Testament. <clears throat> and Jude, he says very similar things. Dear friends... I was eager to write to you about the salvation that we all share. But I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith. What does contend mean? He wants wants to urge them to fight for the faith that was delivered to them, to be careful to defend the faith against these false teachers. Contend for the faith that was once all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written long ago, and this is just like in First or Second Peter, it says, they secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality or sin. You guys hear that? What were these people doing that were the false teachers? They were turning the grace of God and they were perverting it somehow to be a license to sin, okay? And they denied Jesus Christ, our only sovereign Lord. Now, did you see that in the first one also? They were denying 
our sovereign Lord. So you see a lot of comparisons between these two. Jude came after uh, what Peter wrote and was kind of uh, echoing a lot of the things that P- Peter wrote because Peter was saying they were coming. Jude was saying they're here now. And they're trying to combat this uh, teaching or heresy. So what we should do is when we begin to read this, we want to be really careful to examine the things that we teach and the things that we've been taught. Not just the things that I'm preaching today. You should take everything that I say. Don't say that he's a pretty good guy. Don't say he's got a pretty nice family or seems like an honest fellow when he preaches. Don't do that. Take what I say. Go home and study. Go home and make sure the foundation you're building on is correct. If I say something, go home and study it and pray for the Holy Spirit to, to tell you that that, let, let Him bear witness with your heart that that is a truthful foundation you're building your life on. <clears throat> but in the passages, He's warning about false teachers and false teaching, okay? Now it's really important as Christians, separate the two. Because there are false teachers and there's false teaching. Okay? Now there's a lot of ways a person can acquire false teaching. Right? I want you to think about some of the ways. How about denominational? How many think that you can be in error sometimes following a denomination? Now does that make denomination evil. No, it doesn't. But whenever that happens, what does that do to the gospel for the future? People will find organizations that try to teach the truth in disrepute. It will damage the gospel because somebody led people astray. So we've got to be very careful whether we're elders, uh, deacons, members of a church, whatever we are, we have to be careful to examine the word and make or it wasn't just that it came from the denomination. I agree. We have to make sure it's biblical. That's bigger than the denomination. <clears throat> Another way your foundation can be built, graphical or regional. Do you know that even within denominations, you can have a whole different belief in an area. Uh, sometimes when we go up to Bible class, there are people that come from the mountains of West Virginia and Kentucky. Okay? And it's you get some unusual, some of you know what I'm talking about, some unusual regional and geographical. I mean, even if you take somebody from the north and comes down the south or south to the north, how many know there are regional differences? There could have been a strong leader in that area that preached one area of doctrine um, way stronger than he should have and could have leaned in a direction really strongly and led a lot of people astray. And that's what we got to be really cautious about. We gotta make sure that we're built on the Word of God and not on personalities, right? We gotta know it for ourselves. It's like a house that's built. You ever seen the houses? They're all built, uh, basically leaning on each other. What happens when you take one of those houses out? It's like dominoes. There's no, nothing holding it up. It's been held up by the other house for a long time. So we gotta know for ourselves what we believe. Another one. How about parental foundations? Did you know that you can be raised by sincere parents who maybe didn't exactly know the Word of God or maybe they were led astray by other people? And so you can have these foundations that can have all this error in it and this error is going to produce, if there's there's an error in your beliefs, it's going to cause the fruit to be a little bit in error too. How many know that? And what we want is good fruit. You say, well, just throw the whole thing away if it's wrong. No, that's not how it works. Because all of us are learning together, right? And this is why I think it's so important to separate the false teaching from the false teacher. But another one here. How about teaching that's acquired through TV evangelists? Sometimes it could be easy thing would be just lump them all together and say they're all bad or they're all good, right? But the truth is, a lot of people go to churches and you could preach a good word at the church, 
But you have a bad foundation based on what you're hearing on television or vice versa. You could get a good word from television and your local church could not be laying a good foundation for you. So we've got to be very cautious where we're building this foundation. If it's not a good foundation, we've got to be very careful that we don't have air. Now sometimes we hear false teaching and we're like a group of people. You ever seen the townspeople with the pitchforks and the and, and the, uh, they got the stick with a fire on it, and they're all running through town, and they're ready to beat somebody's door down, and they're ready to remove the prophet, right? Or the false teacher. But here's the truth about it all. Sometimes there are people that are pure evil, and they lead people astray, and they're false teachers, and, and, and you see the full brunt of what the Scripture says is going to happen to them. But too many times, it's the people where it says, many will follow them. And it's church people that just have foundations that have been laid wrong. And here's the problem. I walk in every week into church and I see those errors affecting your ability to receive the grace of God and the love of God. And what God wants to do is He wants to take away those foundations that maybe you've had since you were a child. And God wants to add to your life through subtraction. God wants to lay that foundation right And God wants you to begin receive of His love and His grace and His mercy. And this is where the two heresies that are mentioned in the New Testament, how many know that both of those heresies are wrapped around grace? How we receive grace is where these two false teachings find their source. Now why in the world would the enemy want to destroy the teaching of grace? Because grace is the only thing in this room that will save any one of us. Not a single person in this room that has a chance if God's grace does not break through. Number one, you can't be saved without God's grace. Number two, you cannot mature in your walk with the Lord without His continued grace. And so what the enemy does, the enemy takes his aim directly at grace. And somehow the enemy can pervert the message of grace, can destroy everything the church is trying to do. The enemy can make the church so damaged goods that nobody wants to be a part of it anymore. And what God is saying is, I want to restore your ability to receive my grace. I want you to receive it like I intended it to be, and God wants to break these foundations up. Now there are two areas that this heresy, like I said, began to happen. Let's look at the word heresy first. Heresy, the actual Greek word, is eresis. And simply the word means, you would think it would mean like some satanic teaching or something that came from the pit of hell, and it's not that way. It's subtle. The word eresis means a school of thought. This means a school of thought, a preference to a school of thought. Hmm. Think about it. How many preferences and schools of thought? Now you say school, does that mean like a grade school, high school, college? No, it's more like a school of fish. It's like one of them gets something and they all gather to that teaching. And so that's where we have to be careful. They can gather around something that is good and correct, right? But also, many can gather around something that may not be right. Now, here's the other issue. These heresies are usually around truth. So, wow, I thought it was probably around something really bad by the way that the Scripture is talking about it. No, it's usually around truth. Here's the problem. The two heresies that were the most in the Bible were super law and super grace. I want you to picture, if you can, super law with his cape on and super grace with his cape on. Because the one heresy that was really bad was the law on steroids. Alright? And no, I'm not on steroids. I may look like it, but I'm not. Alright? I know you guys were wondering. This can't be natural, but it is. <laughs> Then the other one is grace on steroids. 
Do you think that was even possible? That a heresy can come out of super grace? Grace on steroids? The first heresy is kind of easy to see how it began to happen. You know, there were Judaizers in the church. And as the church began to grow, everything in the Bible with the law was to bring you to Christ. Even in the Old Testament, that they could not fulfill the law, right? So everything in the Old Testament was, this law is supposed to direct me to Christ. Every sacrifice, every ceremony, every moral law was supposed to direct me to Christ. But what ended up happening was, when Christ came, they threw Christ away and wanted to continue in the law. And what Christ was trying to say was, the law has a purpose. There is a purpose within the law. But what they began to do, and here's the heresy that grew up around super law. All right, Law on steroids began to say that you actually earn your way to heaven by who you are and what you do. How many know that? And there's an act of grace, there's a work of grace that's called sanctification, holiness. All right? And some people attach sanctification and holiness to a thing called justification. All right? Here's two terms you need to know. When we come to the Lord, the first thing we have to receive when we receive grace is justification. That means there's nothing good in me. There's nothing I can do to earn my way to heaven. There's no level of holiness. There's no level of sanctification. There's no level of behavior. There's no level of success or failure. They'll get me in or get me out. I'm justified because He died for me. And so a lot of people, they will try to bring people into the church. And you know how hard it is for me to preach the full gospel when they're legalistic message. Because I've got to bring somebody in that is an alcoholic and not delivered from that alcohol yet. And they're struggling. Occasionally they go to the bottle. Occasionally they have issues with drugs. Occasionally they have immorality in their life. But i got to tell them about the justifying power of Jesus Christ. How many know that? I am helpless to preach to that person. I'm helpless to preach to you if I don't have justification. Because there's no way that you can clean them up enough. There's no way that they can be good enough to be saved. There's no way that I can make that person able to be saved except for justification. How many know that? I'm going to quiet down a little bit. Because I'm just excited and you think I'm mad. But here's the thing. The legalist wouldn't allow that person to be saved. But see, the message that I have to preach, it's resisted by a lot of people. I can't get this message of grace through because they believe they have to be perfect or cleaned up before God can save them. And I can't, I can't preach the gospel without the proper understanding of justification. That God died for you and there's nothing you can do to earn it. How many understand that? That's the first act of grace, that He died in my place for my sins, and there's nothing I can do to earn it, and nothing I can do to lose it by my sins. Say, "Uh uh-oh, now what are you teaching? And here's the problem. Many of the great teachers of the Bible began to teach justification. And they were right. They delivered a lot of people from legalism. But then the next heresy of the church, the great heresy of the church, began to expose itself. It happened in the early church. It even happened during the Reformation. Martin Luther, immediately one of his best friends, began to teach. How many have ever heard of something called antinomianism? Antinomos, to make it easy. Or in the Greek, it's anomos. Nomos means law. A means no law. Antinomos means absolutely no law. Antinomianism is one of the greatest heresies the church has ever had. And in our society right now, it is dominating our preaching. 
When you go home, like I said, look up what I'm saying. Look up antinomianism. All right, it's a long word. A-N-T-I-N-O-M-I-A-N-I-S-E. But the word simply means no law. And here's the error of these two, super grace and super law. Okay? People begin to say, all heresy is, is somebody taking a single doctrine and really overdoing it. In fact, let me give you a quote. I love this quote. A.W. Tozer put it this way. Fundamental Christianity in our times is deeply influenced by the ancient enemy of righteousness, antinomianism. The creed of the antinomian is easily stated. We are saved by faith alone. Works have no place in salvation. Conduct is works, and therefore conduct is of no importance. What we do cannot matter as long as we believe rightly. The divorce between what we believe and our conduct is absolute and final. The question of sin is settled on the cross. Conduct is outside our circle of faith and cannot come between the believer and God. That is a brief brief teaching of the issue of antinomian. Listen, here's what they began to do. And this is what's happening in our society. People have grown up in churches that were legalistic. Okay, the legalism is very obvious. I'll go through the signs of legalism. They can throw you. Wear this, don't wear that. Do this, don't do that. And they have a list of do's and they have a list of don'ts. And by the time you're done with it, you are literally earning your way to salvation. But in the Bible, the Bible is very clear. There are two parts of grace. One is imputed grace. And the other is imparted grace. And both those doctrines only take half of grace. The imputed grace says, I am saved by His grace. It's not by me. It's not by works. It's not by anything that I've done. And the second part of grace is sanctification or hopeless. And see, here's what happens. Did you feel that switch? Because I see it in people's eyes. The minute you say holiness... The minute you say sanctification, what happens? The light switches off. And I say, I'm never going back to that again. I'll never go back. I was raised in, you were raised in air. You weren't taught about grace that saves and imputes his righteousness no matter what you do, right? So you say, I'm going as far as I can possibly go from that air. And you think, the, poss- the farthest possible way from that is my behavior has nothing to do with my salvation. And see, here is the great error of antinomianism. An antinomian says, my conduct has nothing to do with that. I'm free from the law. I'm free, free, free. And I'll, in a minute, I'll show you the signs of an antimonian doctrine of churches that teach it and preachers that teach it. And basically, conduct is totally removed. And this is what Peter and Jude are teaching about here. There are going to be people, in fact, it was coming largely from the Gnostic community of that day, they were teaching that the law has no place in the believer. And certainly, there is no place, the ceremonial law, no place. But there is a moral law that all through the New Testament they taught. In fact, you can see quotes from every teacher in the New Testament about the first commandment, the second commandment. They bring it up and they expound on it, and Jesus taught on it. And here's what he was trying to do. He was trying to impart to us holiness by his grace. How many know that God's gospel is not only to save you, but it's also to mature you? It's also to make you uh, grow in holiness It's made to grow you and sanctify you. You say, well, what if I don't do it? And see, a lot of people say, if I don't do it, then there's association of guilt, right? And so a lot of people will not teach holiness or sanctification. In fact, it's really hard. Remember when the guy comes in and he's an alcoholic and I want to lead him to the Lord and I understand that that alcohol is not going to keep that guy from being saved? 
I have a really hard time teaching holiness to people for the same reason. Because every time I mention holiness, they associate it with the air of legalism. So I'm having a hard time helping people stay away from destructive behavior. I see it in their eyes. I see it in the eyes of the legalist that says, how can that person be saved? You know what they do in their life. And then I have a hard time with Christian who I'm trying to keep from destructive behavior who God is trying to make holy. Because he wants to impute his righteousness, but then for a lifetime he wants to impart his righteousness because guess what? You don't have it. How many have it? Don't raise your hand. God has been imparting righteousness to me because when I met him, I was filthy. He's seen me as perfect and he washed me of all my sins, but I needed his righteousness because that world that I would have been on would be destructive. How many know that? So God wants us to not be afraid. If, you're, if you've been taught, if you've ran as far away from legalism as you can, don't fall into this other camp. And then if you're in the other camp, don't go back to the legalistic camp. And here's the problem. A lot of people look at these two ideas and they think, the example you will hear when people discuss this sometimes is there is a road and there is a ditch on each side. And they say this two teachings are two separate ditches. They say, man, I was raised in the legalistic side, which means to work for everything or I'm not right. And they say, I want to be as far away from that as I can. So they think they go all the way to the other side to compensate. And now it's like conduct means nothing. I'm forgiven of everything. Once I'm saved, I'm always saved. I don't have to do anything. And so they think that they are two exact opposites. If I don't want to be in one, I want to be in the other. But here's the issue. They're sisters. See, some of you thought you were getting as far away from legalism as you could but they're actually sisters from the same mother. Grace has been perverted dramatically with both. You say, well, how are they the same? Because they're both motivated by the same roots. And the root is independence from God. Legalism seeks to be independent of God because they think they can be good enough. They think in their self, how many have known somebody in their self thought they could be good enough? And they struggle constantly with trying to be good enough. And either they fooled themselves and said, I'm good enough without God, or they're constantly depressed because they're not good enough. No, that's true. But it's all driven by independence from God. I don't want God in my, I don't want God to give it to me for free. I want to earn it. I want to do it independently of God, and it is an error that will not only destroy you, it is damnable. How many know that if you go down that road and you keep going down that road and you keep going down that road, eventually you're going to be immune? You're going to go so far down that road, you're going to be like a Pharisee. And there's still, you know, Paul spent Romans 1 through 5, go home and read it, trying to explain to them that you are not good enough. You're a sinner. And you have to be saved by my atoning death. And everything in Romans 1 through 5 is to state that purpose that you are not good enough. And if you go down that road, I'm warning you today. How many know that as a shepherd, if I had a flock of sheep, I have to constantly be looking at the next place I'm going to take them. I have to look ahead. I have to say, am I going to a dry ravine? You know, am I going to a lush area of grass? Am I going through a rough forest to get to some grass? Where am I going? And as a shepherd in this church, I and anybody who calls himself a leader, we have to look at the landscape. We have to say, what are they going to run into? And what you're going to run into is legalism. You're going to run into places where they condemn you because you're not good enough. You're going to walk into this place. Let me very carefully. Everybody look up here. I come in here on Sunday mornings and some of you will not worship and will not have joy because you feel like you failed again. And I have to keep preaching that over and over and over and over again. And I don't mind doing it because the Holy Spirit saying, preach it to them. But you know what would be better than me catching a fish for you every Sunday? Teaching you how to properly receive grace. 
because you need addition by subtraction. You need to break up that foundation of legalism. It's not about how you're dressed. It's not about how you perform this week. It's about any of those things. It's about He died for you in your place, and because of that, you are holy. And if it's anything but that, you fell. How many know that? Do you know that I could not walk into this place and worship a single day of my life if I walked in and felt like I had to earn it? Because I know what I am. And that's why I'm full of joy, because yes, I fell, but no, I didn't. My sins aren't held against me. It says those who receive his death, it's not imputed against you. It's not held to your record. Everybody else, it is. But because I've received his death and resurrection, he won't hold my sins against me. It means I can wash, walk in here with clean hands, pure heart. I can come into the presence of God. I can say, God, I love you. Your, your grace has become amazing to me. How? Have you done this for me? And I don't want to. I don't want to catch a fish every week and feed you. I'll do it because I love doing it. But I want to teach you to catch a fish. I want to teach you to have a life that is full of joy. He's beaten you up enough for your failures. You've been condemned enough by the enemy. All right, you've been destroyed by people that said you didn't dress right, you didn't do this right, you didn't do that right. I want an alcoholic to come in and understand. You can worship with us and God will deliver you of that. It may be a year before that alcoholic is delivered. How many know that? It might be a year. It might be two years. It might be three years. It might be when he dies. But here's the next part of grace. God expects you to want to be holy. God wants to sanctify you. God wants you to view his word and say, hey, is there anything in my life that is destructive? And antinomianism is the exact sister. It wants to be independent of God. How many know somebody who says there is no law says that I am good enough? Hey, no, I don't need the law. When the Bible is very clear that you do. Because you know the law brings, and this is a word that you're not supposed to use with the new grace preachers, brings conviction. In fact, you know, the Bible tells me in Timothy that I'm supposed to preach the Word and reprove. Do you know what that word is in the Greek? Convict. I'm supposed to convict. Every time you see that word reprove, it's telling me that's a part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, why is He telling you to be convicted? Because it's something in your life that is dangerous. It's damaging. Well, the grace preachers that are on steroids with grace, they say, you don't need that. We only need inspiring words, good words. We don't need preaching about sin. We don't need to hear. They don't want the word repentance to be brought up. They don't want anything like conviction to be brought up. They don't want sins to be brought up because we are not under the law. In fact, if you want to begin to study about these preachers, they're called, some people call them hyper grace preachers. And it's a heresy that is going through the Christian world rapidly. And so what it does is it makes a people that have no desire for holiness, no desire to see um, things in their life that may not be right with God. And it's like he was saying here, did you notice how many times he said they were immoral? Many people were following them. They were doing, I mean, there really was no separation from the world with this group because they were not under the law. The law has a purpose. The law has a purpose to tell me when I'm out of the boundaries of where God wants me to be. Now, what if I can't fulfill the law? What if something the Holy Spirit tells me I'm bound by? I'm forgiven. But, old new set of teaching when they say just ignore it. Sin is not a message that we need to hear anymore because we're not bound to sin. We're not bound to the law. And what begins to happen is because the sin is not dealt with, we're beginning to see these preachers one after another fall. We begin to see these churches, when you walk in them, there's no difference in those churches than the world. In fact, most of them have their churches and taverns. Let me know this. There's a giant movement to have churches in the taverns. 
to meet in places where there's not even, you know, to not even look like a church anymore. We don't even want to look at a church. We're so far removed from the legalists that we don't even want to look at a church. Some of them call themselves beer Bible studies and beer preachers and cussing pastors. You think I'm joking? I mean, no, I'm not joking. This is a heresy. Okay, and I began to look at some of the red flags, and one thing, I, I just began to, in my spirit, I just began to notice this consistent doctrine that's been coming out of a lot of different people. One, one thing that is uh, consistent that I've noticed, they always want to have unbelievers as their church workers. Is that unusual? That began to catch me off guard. I heard one person say it was a leader. I heard another person say it was a leader. And then I, all of a sudden I've been hearing this parroted by a lot of people. And then I began to realize this is a movement. This is an actual movement that is flowing through the church right now. It's the exact opposite of a legalistic church, but it's equally the same heresy. It's this ideal that we don't, you know, there's no holiness. There's no sanctification. Whoever put that on you was wrong. There's, there's no law to us. We can do whatever we want. Just enjoy life and have fun. There is no holiness. How many know this exists? And I'm warning you in advance, this is a heresy. God wants me to preach repentance. How many know that? If I were a pastor that did not preach repentance, number one, I wouldn't be reading my Bible because the Bible like requires me to do that. But these, these men will not preach repentance. They don't want anybody uncomfortable with sin. You, you guys think I'm making this up. You need to go home and study these words that I'm telling you. They don't want me to preach against sin. They don't want me to... You're not even supposed to say. Like if I... I mean, let me give you something real radical here. If I say alcohol is bad, oh man, I'm a legalist. Chad, you are a legalist, man. How dare you say that, man? How dare you bring that up? If I say that living with your partner outside of marriage and having sexual intercourse is wrong, how dare you? How dare you say that? Meanwhile, these sins are destroying families. And I'm supposed to shut up because I'm a legalist. I'm not a legalist. Trust me, I wouldn't be saved if I were a legalist. I wouldn't have made it. But how many know if I'm a loving pastor, I will preach against sin? I will outline it very clearly. Even if, here's the hard thing, people in our church are struggling with it. See, I've got to preach it even though I know somebody is sitting in here that's living with their partner. I've got to say it's sin or how else will they ever get help from the Lord? If somebody's involved in a homosexual lifestyle, I want to lead them to the Lord, but I've got to preach against it. How many know? If somebody has had an abortion, you say, well, don't preach about that. You're going to hurt their feelings. I'm trying to avoid future abortions and I'm trying to minister healing to that person. If somebody an alcoholic, I've got to help them with that destructive lifestyle. I can't be silent about it. You can't muzzle me on that. I'm not a legalist. I'm somebody that loves the law of the Lord because the law of the Lord does what? It puts my knees in front of God who can save me. It is helpful. It is a good thing. But see, the anti-nomos community says it's a bad thing. It's an awful thing. And they make everybody who actually tries to live a holy life by the grace of God, did you hear me? Live a holy life by the grace of God, they call them all legalists. Legalists, legalists, legalists. And you go into the churches and it's all about filth. Filthy messages, uh, nothing to do with holiness, nothing to do with living for God. God forgave you of your sins because He wanted to help you live a holy life. If worse as a Christian than I was 10 years ago as an unsaved person, then what is the gospel for? What's the gospel for? And this message is tickling people's ears trying to make them feel good about where they're at. No, you're all right. Keep doing what you're doing. God loves you. He died for you. Your sins are all forgiven, past, present, and future, no matter what you do. You don't have to feel sorry for your sin. 
But the message that I preach is the real gospel. And it says that God died to take away my sins. God died to help me overcome my sins. God died so that the strongholds in my life can be broken. You say, well, what if I have a stronghold and I can't quit? His grace. The same grace that says, I will forgive you for the stronghold. I can walk into this place joyful even though there's things in my life that I'm still trying to get right. How many know that? That's how big the grace of God is. But the same grace of God says, stay with me and I'll make you holy. So be very aware. This whole message is to try to make you aware. Here's some of the signs of a legalistic spirit. Joy is an indicator. Okay, if every time you walk into the house of God, you can't overcome your depression for your behavior, you have a legalistic foundation. Because you still feel uncomfortable with something you've done wrong. Okay, if I preach a message about some sin or something that's wrong, that just indicates, I've never listened to a message. In fact, I listen to preachers. Some people are like me and some people aren't, okay? When I listen to a message that challenges my lifestyle, I'm happy to hear it. It actually excites me, and some people don't understand that. But if you properly understand grace, on the one hand, I'm never condemned. Never have I listened to a message that said, hey, Chad, you need to lie less. Well, man, you know what? I wasn't totally honest. I could actually be better in telling the truth than what I am, and I don't feel condemned. You know, or I could actually be better in the way I treat people. Or I could actually do this a little better, that a little better. Never does condemnation ever come into my heart because of grace. How many know that? So when you come in and you hear something about lifestyle and you see it's biblical, what you should not do, you should not say, oh no, I'm depressed because I can't live up to that. God still gives me joy when I walk in this house. I walk in this house and I say, God, you love me and you're going to help me love people more. God, you love me and you're going to help me get better in that area. God, you love me even though maybe I was bad to my entire family and I know it's wrong. I come into God's house and say, praise God, you're going to make me better tomorrow. You're going to help me do a better job. God's here to help me do better in my sins. How many know that? God wants to see me get better. In fact, do you know Jesus didn't take away the law? Do you know He expanded it? He said, the Bible says, do not murder a man. Jesus said, I tell you a higher law. He said, if you have anger in your heart against a man, you've murdered him in your heart. So Jesus didn't take the law away. He was trying to make us appreciate it more. It's kind of like this. You can tell a people not to speed, right? And you can make the laws really firm on speeding, right? But the law is still there. They're trying to find ways immediately to overcome that law, right? But if I'm an officer, and every time I go through an intersection, I know that I've seen people who have been accidents, who have been killed in accidents because they didn't listen to the speed limit. When I drive down that dangerous curve, that's what's on my mind. And that's a deeper law. So I want to drive the right speed because I respect the reason that they put that speed limit there. I respect it because I know people have died not listening to it. I mean, know the difference. And so what he's trying to do is give us an appreciation. Another thing with a legalistic spirit, it's very difficult to get victory over sin. Because it's very hard for them to receive the grace of God. Let me give you an example. If I walked into this house and I was addicted to a sin and I was legalistic, that sin would beat me up really bad. How many know that? How many have ever been beaten up by your failure to do something? By me being beat up, I would walk into the house of God and if I were depressed over it, I wouldn't worship. I wouldn't listen to the Word. I wouldn't do anything. I wouldn't do anything that God had put there for me to overcome this sin. I would be so depressed that I would just sit back and only think about that sin. But what God wants us to do is walk into His house with joy, walk into His presence with joy. God doesn't want us beating ourselves up over sins. He wants us to come to Him and receive grace. He wants to purge that sin, but He wants to cover in the process. Another legalist thought. Um, very performance oriented. Like, 
in order for me to be closer to God, I must pray for this amount of time. I must read my Bible for this amount of time. I must fast for this amount of time. And there's a performance orientation to that person. That's all they think about is performance, performance, performance. How many have ever been that way? It's okay to say it because it sounds like the right thing to do. But what God wants to do is He wants your heart to overflow. Say, man, I enjoy prayer. Man, I love digging into my Bible. And that's a whole different attitude than a legalistic, i got to do this if I want to be somebody who's, who's growing in God. And that legalistic attitude will make you hate studying the Bible, make you hate praying, make you hate doing those things. Another one, um, your attitude toward other people. How many know that you project your attitudes? You could be a Christian for 20 years and God can can mature you in a way where you don't even look like the same person you were 20 years ago. And guess what a legalistic person will do? They'll pull that 20 years of maturity and put it on a person that just got saved. Think about it. Why is he not behaving like I am? Why is he not able to overcome things like I am? Why is he able to not be mature like I am? That's a legalistic attitude. Um, you pr- put your performance issues on other people. Um, obsessive about outward standards. Um, bondage to traditions, even if they're not biblical. Right? Um, almost no assurance that you're saved is a clear sign. If you've given your heart to the Lord and you're serious about serving the Lord, I don't care how many times you've failed, God is going to deliver you. All right, No matter what your sin is, if your attitude is, I've given my life to Jesus Christ, and that plan cannot fail. No matter how many times you fail, it can't. And somebody who has a legalistic foundation who has been told a lot of performance things, that foundation will keep telling you you're not saved. And it will actually keep, it'll hinder you from receiving God's grace. It'll hinder you in your walk with the Lord because you'll always be depressed. Okay, now the other one. A few signs that I went completely in the other direction. In fact, let me tell you real quick, and I know I'm going long here. Time is All right, I'm going to close here in a second. But think about, I never looked at it this way, but think about the two brothers. Um, the, the man that had two sons and, t- and Luke, and one son was the good son, right? It's a parable of two sons. The prodigal son's the one we focus on. But how many know the one son was a good son? And the one son probably did everything his father asked him to do, right? But this story is also about him because he didn't love the father either. He got upset when his brother, who was the prodigal, went away and was in sin and doing everything wrong, he came back and he said, why are you throwing a party for my brother? And he was angry at his father, had no love for his father. And the story is as much about that son as it is the other one. Because why was his attitude like that? Why did he not love the father? Because the father gave him two-thirds of his inheritance and the other son only got a third. And then the other son hated his father too. He basically took everything his father, one-third of his inheritance, blew it literally on prostitutes. Spent all of his money in a faraway place, didn't do anything, dishonored the father. And I think these two, the Holy Spirit was speaking to me this week. Those two are very similar to these two errors in teaching. The one son is the legalist. He did everything he thought was right. And he kept asking, God, why won't you love me more? Why won't you love me more? Why don't you love me more? I do this and I do that and I do this. I'm the good son. Why don't you do more to love me, God? And God was saying the whole time, could not love you more. There's nothing you have to do. You're my son. I don't love you because of the things that you've done. I love your other, I love my other son as much as I can love him. And he's still crying out. And some of the legalists are crying out and they're saying, why don't you love me more, God? I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I'm doing this. And God says, relax. Just love me. He lost his love for his father because he wanted more from his father. What more could his father have done for him? Then the other son, he's kind of like this one that runs off in a pig pen. 
Right? And I bet you one of the reasons he ran as far away from the house as he possibly could is because the dad appeared to like the other son better. You ever notice that? This son probably was not the favorite it appeared to him because he didn't do things like the other one, right? The other one was straight-laced. The other one did everything the father said it. I did everything you ever asked me, father. And the good son, the one son was like, well, I don't even want any part. I want to go as far away from my can as that. And that's what the person in the super grace crowd does. They say, I want to be as far away from that legalist as I can possibly be. And they both had the same problem. Neither one of them loved God. They both were as far away from God as they could possibly be. And neither one of them loved the Father. And what God's asking you today is, is your legalism or your running from what God wants to do in your life, is it causing you not to love the Father? Here's some of the hyper-grace flags. They never speak against sin. I want some of you to think of some of the preachers that you may listen to. They may be laying a foundation in your life. If they never help us by helping us recognize areas that God's not pleased in, they're not doing you a favor. They're laying a bad foundation. Okay? Not to say that you have to speak about sin all the time, but it is part of the whole counsel of God. All right? They never take a cultural stand for righteousness. Righteousness is a dirty word in that camp. Righteousness they associate with legalism. And so any mention of the word righteousness, now where does our righteousness come from? God wants us to have His righteousness and not ours. So righteousness is something God wants, it's just not ours. It's something we have to have imparted and we have to acquire and we have to seek God Uh, in areas of our life, for His righteousness. In fact, the Bible says, um, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His... So I'm supposed to seek it. So why aren't they talking about it? Three, the Old Testament is almost completely ignored in their teaching. Four, people who live immoral lives are allowed to teach and lead ministries. This, by the way, is not my list. This is an article that I read. I didn't make that up. They literally will have a whole platform of unsaved people in their church. And I'm hearing this all over the place. Holiness or separation from God is not a big deal. And Let me me separate this for you. If I'm looking for a leader in the church... I have to find somebody that is mature in their walk with the Lord. And that's why the Bible gives qualifications for their morality. The Bible says, look for this kind of person as a leader. So when I'm teaching a Bible study, I'm very, very uh, serious about finding people who have fruit of maturity. Meaning they're not struggling with gross they struggled with when they were new Christians. But if you're a new Christian... I understand you're not mature yet. How many understand that? So when I'm in a Bible study, I've got to be really direct with leaders about being mature, but I also have to understand somebody who's a new Christian is not yet mature. Does that make sense? So, But what some of them do is they throw the baby out with the bathwater. They say, well, wait a minute, we can't expect our leaders to show fruits of maturity because we'll make the other people feel bad. So they don't teach anything about maturity. They don't teach anything about an expected moral behavior of their leaders. So what they end up with is a whole church of leaders that have never followed God. And um, the pastor will constantly speak against the church. Like the church is a dirty word. And you'll constantly, in fact, I know people... I know people that are legalistic, and I can tell that in a few moments. I can also tell the Spirit in a few moments, because everybody's a Pharisee. Everybody's legalistic. The church is bad. They're always a reformed movement, okay? They're always reforming the church. And always, if you say anything about living right, it's always, you're legalistic, man. 
man, you're legalistic. And I can spot it in a second. I can spot it in a Bible study. I can spot it in a class. I can spot it on the street. I can spot the legalist in a second. And both of them are going away from God. I'm not saying a person's in heresy. Don't get me wrong. Because that's another thing I had in my notes. First John addresses it greatly and he says, love each other. You know, try to correct one one another lovingly and keep everybody solid in what they believe. I'm not here to call anybody a uh, false teacher. I separate that. Because a lot of us have just been influenced by false teaching. And we've got to be very careful, okay? Last couple here. I'm going to stop there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord. Father, I ask that you would... um, Take away any of these foundations that affect our lifestyle, Lord God. Father, if we are struggling with sin, Lord, we're struggling with failure, we're struggling with condemnation, Lord, we're struggling um, with receiving Your grace, Lord God, I pray today that You would break up that foundation. Lord, that they would know that, Lord, sin doesn't have power over us, Lord God. It doesn't have the ability to condemn us. It doesn't have the ability to bring death, Lord God. Lord, I just pray that you would, uh, your grace would break through every legalistic foundation, Lord. Set them free, Lord God. Lord, I also pray that you would, um, Father, you would lovingly speak into our lives, Lord God. Lord, you saved us, bought us, purchased us, Lord, for a purpose, Lord. Father, you saved us for the purpose of being your hands, your feet. We're the representation of you, Lord God, in this world. I pray that you would establish the foundation, Lord God, of imparted righteousness and imputed righteousness, Lord. 